The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Here's another scattering of advice, just writers and artists talking about what they believe or what they think works or just how they get done what they do or just what the writing life or the creative life is. The first comes from Toni Morrison, and when she was asked uh, if she felt any anger or if she felt that emotion was any use to writing her novel Beloved, which of course is about slavery, she said the most amazing thing, amazing for those of us living in 2022. She said, well, slavery is such a large subject. I wanted to do them justice. I didn't want to make them live happily ever after. Now, it is true that there were moments when I faltered and, you know, I would stop writing for a while until the language was there. But my job was so easy compared to theirs. All I had to do was think about it, write about it, and try to feel it. I didn't have to live it. So I thought, well, if they could endure that life, the least I could do is write about it. But there were moments when it was a little overwhelming for me. But the emotion is not good. The questioner asked about anger. You don't get over it. You go through it. So you displace anger because it's just not useful. It's not useful to your gifts. It's not useful to your talent. And you write badly. I can't write out of that feeling. And two minutes into this episode, I just want to to say that for my money, and for the last 10 years or so, I'm sure that my mind could change again someday, but uh, for the last 10 years or so, Beloved has been my favorite novel. I read it about 10 years ago, and then uh, just after my daughter was born, I listened to an audiobook of Toni Morrison reading it. And I can't think of uh, a more beautiful and devastating expression of what being a a parent is, uh, let alone all the layers of slavery in American history that goes on top of it. But it seems so important to hear not just a writer, but someone of Toni Morrison's stature saying that emotion is not good as as an impulse to write. Uh, You displace anger. You should displace anger because it's not useful. It is not useful to your gifts. It is not useful to your talent. 
and you write badly. I can't write out of that feeling. And it seems that everyone who uh, thinks that uh, anger is a gift or that the mere expression of anger about this or that thing, um, the divisiveness of social media and uh, cable news being what it is, uh, it thrives on anger because anger is so simplistic. It's so easy to quote. It's so easy to show a clip of anger. But when you get right down to it, it is of almost no use whatsoever, um, other than in the moment to make whoever it is who is angry feel like they are accomplishing something. But if you want to create a lasting work of art, or if you just want to truly communicate with another human being, um, if you want to do something that lasts longer than a moment, I don't think that anger will help you. And if you read Beloved, just with that in mind, all of the horrible scenes of brutality, all the horrible scenes just of day-to-day -day life as a slave, and you realize that this is, that this was one of her rules, it may not have even been a rule that she uh, had in her mind as she was writing. It sounds like something that Toni Morrison figured out a long time ago, and it just uh, went without saying. Um, you can imagine how much less of a book and how much of a fad or just how unread it may have gone if the whole impulse had been to hit the reader over the head about being angry about slavery. Let's see here. And here are two passages. The first is from Richard Wilbur, the poet Richard Wilbur, talking about the uh, talking about the suicide of the poet John Berryman. So I'll read that one first and then read a quotation from uh, John Berryman himself. Richard Wilbur said this, um, I called up the poet Stanley Kunitz the day that John Berryman killed himself. We consoled one another and talked about whether his act had been predictable. One thing we agreed upon was this, that whereas Stanley and I do many things apart from poetry, we both love gardening, for example, John Berryman was a very hard worker and that he lived almost entirely within his profession, profession of poetry. Some of his dream songs, his long book of dream songs, seem to drag in a good deal of the world, but they do it mainly through books and Time magazine and the daily newspaper. The impression that one is left with is of a man who is working desperately hard at his job. Well, I admire that, but I think it can break your health and destroy your joy in life and art. I haven't got any clever hypotheses about why John killed himself, but a statement of Stanley Kunitz's during that telephone conversation has stuck in my mind. He said, quote, In this country, in America, it is not enough just to publish a book of good poems and forever after be thanked for it. It should be possible, but it's not. 
as soon, end quote, by the way, end quote, as soon as you publish a book of poems, people begin to say, when is your next book coming out? And if you don't publish books at intervals of three of three years, they say, why are you so slow? I have been reproached in the Times Literary Supplement for taking seven years to get out a book, you know. That kind of pleasure is not good for you, and it isn't that kind of pressure is not good for you, and it isn't good for your work. Stanley said, as soon as you publish a book of poems in this country, you are in the poetry prison. I think John felt himself to be in the poetry prison, and that may have been contributory to his death. Now, I remember sending that quotation to a friend of mine who was more familiar with John Berryman and Stanley Kunitz and Richard Wilbur than I was, and he basically thought that that outlook uh, was a pile of shit. He didn't agree with it at all. But I always sort of have, and the only difference that I would say now, I, I think this interview must have been, um, well, I can check and see, when did John Berryman commit suicide? Well, he killed himself in 1972, so this this interview would have happened in the in the 70s. I would have thought it was earlier than that. Um, the only difference now, it seems, is that the the poetry prison is the one where nobody cares about poetry. Um, perhaps uh, our versions of Stanley Kunitz and Richard Wilbur, those poets who are published by Knopf or Grey Wolf or Random House or Penguin, maybe they feel that pressure, um, but I certainly never have, and I don't really know of anybody else who ever has. We're in a different kind of poetry prison these days, and that is one that says, um, who, do, who doesn't even know that you have published a good book of poetry in this country. It just isn't noticed at all. Um, and that's a different situation to be in. The one that I think that we can still kind of uh, put ourselves in the mind of is, um, is the idea, he says, Richard Wilbur says, that uh, John Berryman seems to drag in a good deal of the world, but it is the world as mediated through books and Time Magazine and the Daily Newspaper. Uh, we have to find some way of getting life into our poetry that isn't mediated through Time Magazine and the Daily Newspaper, or these days from YouTube or Netflix, I would say. And the other one is that the, he says that uh, both Stanley Kunitz and Richard Wilbur enjoy doing other things other than writing and reading poetry. And uh, John Berryman did not have that. I've quoted a few times here uh, my astonishment when I read the book jacket bio of um, Charles Fraser, the novelist who wrote Cold Mountain, um, and it simply said that he lived with his wife in, he lived with his family in North Carolina and raised horses. And I realized um, there is nothing, or at least uh, in the past, I realized there is nothing that I have in my life that is the that is the equivalent of raising horses 
and I realized for the sake of my own health, the sake of my own mind, that I needed to find that other something to do, even if it is just finding a way to just sit around and not do anything at all. I can't be writing or reading constantly anymore. And just so we can get the sound of John Berryman's voice in here, uh, talking about himself, um, this is a long comment of his. Let's see what he says here. Uh, this business about geniuses and neglected garrets is for the birds. The idea that a man is somehow no good just, become, just because he becomes very popular, like Robert Frost, is nonsense also. There are exceptions. Thomas Chatterton, Gerard Manley Hopkins, of course, and Arthur Rimbaud. You can think of various cases. But on the whole, men of genius were judged by their contemporaries very much as posterity judges them. So if I were talking to a young writer, I would recommend the cultivation of extreme indifference to both praise and blame, because praise will lead you to vanity, and blame will lead you to self-pity, and both are bad for writers. But what I was going to say is that I do strongly feel that among the greatest pieces of luck for high achievement is the ordeal. Certain great artists can make without it, Titian and others, but mostly you need ordeal. My idea is this. The artist is extremely lucky, who is presented with the worst possible ordeal, which will not actually kill him. At that point, he's in business. Beethoven's deafness, Goya's deafness, Milton's blindness, that kind of thing. And I think that what happens in my poetic work in the future will probably largely depend not on my sitting calmly on my ass and as I think, hmm, hmm, a long poem again, hmm, but instead it will depend on being knocked in the face and thrown flat and given cancer and all kinds of other things short of senile dementia. At that point, I'm out, but short of that, I don't know. I hope to be nearly crucified. I'm scared, but I'm willing. I'm sure this is a preposterous attitude, but I am not ashamed of it. And uh, I suppose it's not a surprise that uh, the man who said those words ended up killing himself. Um, it just isn't a surprise. I'm reminded of uh, something that uh, Cormac McCarthy said, that uh, he sort of believed something like the same thing. Um, or at least it seemed to be the idea was that uh, each book is a kind of... Uh, what is Berryman's word? Um, each book represents a kind of ordeal that the writer has to get out of his or her mind, something they have to get over, a kind of negative mass of black energy that they need to get over before they can get on with it. And he says something like, uh, Cormac McCarthy does, um, if I were God, I wouldn't have quite done it that way. 
that the only way for some writers and some creative people to get on is to find that uh, that huge stubborn point in themselves that they can try and wear away and only by writing a book or producing an album or a painting or a movie only in that way can they get over it I think of Martin Scorsese saying that uh, there's a great deal of Catholicism in uh, Raging Bull where the uh, boxing ring is the altar and the uh, the boxer's blood is the blood of the mass and all of that um, I just always enjoyed Carmack McCarthy saying that uh, if I were God, I wouldn't quite have done it that way. But it does seem to be something that comes up every now and then. And if Cormac McCarthy did still does still believe that, he seems to have found a better way of dealing with it than John Berryman did, since he hasn't published a book since The Road in 2006 or so. Um, he seems to have figured out a very healthy way, indeed, of getting on with himself. Um, let's see how much time we have here. A few more minutes. I came across this remark from T.S. Eliot. I don't even know if it's advice. It's just a surprise to hear T.S. Eliot saying these things. Um, this is from the London Review of Books, where they are quoting... Uh, where they are reviewing uh, a new uh, a new edition of his letters. From, and this is a, from a letter from 1936. Uh, T.S. Eliot writes to his brother Henry with an account of his state of mind while writing The Wasteland that vividly captures the disastrous aspects of uh, his marriage to his first wife, Vivian. And T.S. Eliot says this, I was, of course, too much engrossed in the horrors of my private life to notice much outside, and I was suffering from, one, a feeling of guilt in having married a woman I detested, and consequently a feeling that I must put up with anything, and two, perpetually being told, in the most plausible way, that I was a clodhopper and a dunce. By this time, this is the author of The Wasteland Proofrock. Holloman, Dranchen, um, and very nearly the editor of the Criterion for 20 years. Uh, he worked at Lloyd's Bank, and he's been the poetry director, I believe, at Faber and Faber for 10 years, and he believes that he might be a clodhopper and a dunce. Uh, just to show everybody out there that uh, some some precipice of creativity and confidence, of creativity leading to confidence, doesn't always appear, and we shouldn't expect it to. Um, I came across a remark today, uh, finishing Leon Wieseltier's book uh, on the Mourner's Kaddish, and uh, he says something in there like, um, if you have made peace with life in the world, shame on you. And I just circled that and started. Uh, that is it. We cannot hope, or we should not hope, for uh, the kind of peace or balance or serenity that uh, so many people seem to think that we should or that is being sold uh, to us. Unless we're ready to escape the world 
and I think only a handful of people are ever really able to do that. Um, peace is not the answer. It is uh, finding meaning in the maelstrom, I would say. But uh, T.S. Eliot again, um, thinking, I was a clodhopper and a dunce. Gradually, through making friends, I came to find that English people of the sort that I found congenial were prepared to take me quite as an ordinary human being, and that I had merely married in, into a rather common suburban family with a streak of abnormality, which in the case of my wife had reached the point of liking to give people pain. I shall always be grateful to a few people like the like Virginia Woolf and her husband, who unconsciously helped me to regain my balance and my self-respect. And let's see. Um, let's see. And then in 1938, so following on. And this is from another letter in, from 1939. Uh, he says this. I have no family, no career, and nothing particular to look forward to in this world. I doubt the permanent value of everything I have written. I never lay with a woman I liked, loved, or ever felt any strong physical attraction to. I no longer even regret this lack of experience. I no longer even feel acutely the desire for progeny, which was very acute once. And I am amazed to find uh, T.S. Eliot, the reserved, closed-off guy, saying these things to anybody, even though it is in a private letter. And um, the good news is, for him, that, uh, is that he said near the end of his life that the happiest moments he ever had in his life were uh, belonged to his childhood in St. Louis and summers, or just vacations, was it, in Massachusetts. And then the very end of his life, his second marriage, which seems to have um, been a new awakening for him. And in a way, in a very surprising way, um, whereas you have the idea of Yeats becoming uh, extremely horny and vitalized in his last years and writing great poems out of it, um, Eliot got married again uh, and basically wrote nothing. He had his plays, his verse dramas, which don't seem to have stood up very well. But he saw no reason to uh, prove his vitality in any other way. Uh, the, the, uh, the reviewer here, I believe it's Mark Ford, um, if anyone uh, hasn't yet uh, heard Mark Ford and Seamus Perry's podcast for the London Review of Books, where they talk about one poet's work for about an hour. You should check that out. But uh, Seamus Perry, or is it Mark Ford? Mark Ford says uh, he's talking about um, how Eliot, in between his marriages, becomes obsessed with the Christian ascetics and wants to divest himself of the love of creative beings and all this stuff. He becomes extremely religious. Um, in the sense of shame and guilt, and he says that a man capable of such a self-portrait should have ended up composing the tall girl poems, 
And these are these amazing uh, erotic poems he wrote about his second wife. Uh, registers as a glorious upending of his quest to lead a saintly, almost posthumous existence. I think that's from one of his letters too. Eliot desired to lead an almost posthumous existence. Um, and it's wonderful that uh, he was able uh, to do so. We, we are at 30 minutes here. Um, that is all I have tonight. And uh, if I have time, I will tack something else on as a second part to this episode, probably reading a little bit more from Peter Aykroyd's Shakespeare, because I do love that so much. So until next time. We say then, deliberately, that of all the writers we have ever perused, Mr. Walt Whitman is the most silly, the most blasphemous, and the most disgusting. If we can think of any stronger epithets, we will print them in a second edition. Now that comes from the, liter the London Literary Gazette of July 7, 1860. And based on what we were taught at school, or just by anecdote, I suppose, that is what most people assume was uh, the reception that Walt Whitman got from 1855, when the first edition of Leaves of Grass appeared, up until his death in 1892. And it is true that uh, in the New York Times, in the edition of the New York Times that carried his obituary uh, in 1892, the New York Times also took a moment out to say that Whitman could not be called a great poet unless we deny poetry to be an art. So it's true that he was dismissed his entire life, but one of the gems, one of the uh, great things about Gary Schmidgall's edition of Walt Whitman's poetry is that in the back there is an appendix of contemporary reviews of Leaves of Grass, and I was surprised by what I found there. There is the usual, like what I just read from 1860. And, uh, but th there's also great surprises as well. I'll just jump right into them so you can see. This comes from Charles Henry, Charles A. Dana, the New York Daily Tribune in 1855. And he says in part, they are certainly original in their external form, Whitman's poems are, they have been shaped on no pre-existent model out of the author's own brain. Indeed, his independence often becomes coarse and defiant. His language is too frequently reckless and indecent, though this appears to arise from a naive unconsciousness rather from an impure mind. His words might have passed between Adam and Eve in paradise before the want of fig leaves brought no shame but they are quite out of place amid the decorum of modern society and will justly prevent his volume from free circulation in scrupulous circles. And that is what we expect. Uh, that sounds like uh, 19th century there, uh, responding to Whitman. But the very next sentence says this, With these glaring faults, the leaves of grass are not destitute of peculiar poetic merits. 
which will awaken an interest in the lovers of literary curiosities. They are full of bold, stirring thoughts, with occasional passages of effective description, betraying a genuine intimacy with nature and a keen appreciation of beauty, often presenting a rare felicity of diction, although it is so disfigured with eccentric fancies, as to prevent a consecutive perusal without offense, though no impartial reader can fail to be impressed with the vigor and quaint beauty of isolated portions. And this is how a lot of these reviews go. Uh, they insult him for most of it. They insult Whitman for most of the review. But then it's almost as if uh, their conscience gets the better of them. They have to admit there is something else going on here. Uh, Charles Eliot Norton wrote in September 1855 that, um, let's see, he calls uh, leaves of grass gross yet elevated, this superficial yet profound, this preposterous yet somehow fascinating book. And that is nice. Um, as we say, it is a mixture of Yankee transcendentalism and New York rowdyism. And what must be surprising to both these elements, they here seem to fuse and combine with the most perfect harmony. And Rufus Griswold, also from 1855. As to the volume itself, we have only to remark that it is that it strongly fortifies the doctrine of the metempsychosists, that is, the transcendentalists, for it is impossible to imagine how any man's fancy could have conceived such a mass of stupid filth, unless he were possessed of the soul of a sentimental donkey that had died of disappointed love. Uh, they don't do book reviews like they used to, do they? That's a nice, nice one. I guess you would have to go to Amazon reviews to find uh, 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 an author called a donkey, a sentimental donkey. It's even worse. Let me see here. Uh, the New York Daily News from 1856, this is after the second uh, edition of Leaves of Grass was published. In glancing rapidly over the leaves of grass, you are puzzled whether to set the author down as a madman or an opium eater. When you have studied them, you recognize a poet of extraordinary vigor, nay, even beauty of thought, beneath the most fantastic possible garments of diction. If Hamlet had gone mad, in Ophelia's way, as well as in his own, and in addition to his own vein of madness, he might, when transported to our own age and country, have talked thus. And these are from reviews that go on for a page or more, and you find these little, these little gems stuck in the middle. You find some others. This is one of the most interesting ones. Uh, William Swinton, 1856, in the New York Daily Times. He begins his review by saying this, What centaur have we have here? What centaur have we here? Half man, half beast, neighing shrill defiance to all the world. What conglomerate of thought is this before us? With insolence, philosophy, tenderness, blasphemy, beauty, and gross indecency tumbling in drunken confusion through the pages. Who is this arrogant young man who proclaims himself the poet of the time and who roots like a pig among a rotten garbage of licentious thoughts? 
and yet only a few paragraphs later. In detailing these pictures, he hangs here and there shreds and tassels of his wild philosophy, until his work, like a maniac's robe, is bedized with fluttering tags of a thousand colors, with all his follies, insolence, and indecency. No modern poet that we know of has presented finer descriptive passages than Mr. Walt Whitman, the centaur of the opening paragraph. His phrasing and strength and completeness of his epithets are truly wonderful. He paints in a single line with marvelous power and comprehensiveness. And they quote bits from I Celebrate Myself. Uh, and then it says, Here are fine expressions well placed. Mr. Whitman's study of nature has been close and intense. He has expressed certain things better than any other, any other man who has gone before him. He talks well and largely and tenderly of sea and sky, and men and trees and women and children. His observations and his imagination are both large and well-developed. And, let's see, and further on, with all this muck of abomination soiling the pages, there is a wondrous, unaccountable fascination about leaves of grass. That seems to be it. It's an unaccountable fascination. They can't help themselves. The ones who are open to it can't help but see some worth in Whitman, although they can't quite understand how he does it. As we read it again and again, and we will confess that we have returned to it often, a singular order seems to arise out of its chaotic verses, out of the mire and sloth, Edged thoughts and keen philosophy start suddenly, as the men of Cadmus sprang from the muddy loam. A lofty purpose still dominates the uncleanness and the ridiculous self-conceit in which the author, led astray by ignorance, still indulges. And I hope this isn't just uh, an exercise in... Um, oh, look at these people, they weren't as ignorant as we thought. I do think it's interesting just to see how how these people, how the earliest readers of Whitman actually thought. This comes from William Dean Howells in 1865. So this is a review of Drum Taps, the first edition of his uh, Civil War poems. And this is, well, I'll just read it. Here we are. Um, every man has tender and beautiful and lofty emotions, but the poet was sent into this world to give these a tangible utterance. And if he do not do this, but only give us back dumb emotion, he is a cumberer of the earth. There is a yearning, almost to agony at times, in the human heart to throw off the burden of inarticulate feeling, and if the poet will not help it in this effort... If, on the contrary, he shall seek to weigh it and sink it down under heavier burdens, he has not any reason to be. So long, then, as Mr. Whitman chooses to stop at mere consciousness, he cannot be called a true poet. We all have consciousness, but we ask of art and utterance. We do not so much care in what way we get this expression. We will take it in ecstatic prose, though we think it is better subjected to the laws of prosody, since every good thing is subject to some law. 
but the expression we must have. Often, in spite of himself, Mr. Whitman grants it in this volume, and there is some hope that he will hereafter grant it more and more. There are such rich possibilities in the man that it is lamentable to contemplate his error of theory. Even there, the most, uh, in one of the more sustained criticisms of him, even right at the end, they have to admit something is going on if he could only find a better way of saying it. Let's see. There is a long uh, section from Henry James that I won't read from, although it is nice to think that uh, somebody like Harold Bloom in our own day saw Whitman and Henry James as sort of being, not, if not equals, uh, you might say masters of, of uh, American literature, and James would have found that to be uh, an impossible an impossibility, and maybe Whitman would have as well. He may not have liked Henry James's writings either. This comes from, let's see, yes, all right. This will be the last one that I read from, just a few here. I really enjoyed picking these out. It was nice to see these flashes of these flashes coming. November, uh, this is from the New York Critic in uh, November of 1881. And it says this. Uh, One great anomaly of Whitman's case has been that while he is an aggressive champion of democracy and of the working man, in a broad sense of the term working man, his admirers have been almost exclusively of a class the farthest possibly removed from that which labors for daily bread by manual work. Whitman has always been truly caviar to the multitude. It was only those that knew much of poetry and loved it greatly who penetrated the singular shell of his verses and rejoiced in the rich, pulpy kernel. Even with connoisseurs, Whitman has been somewhat of an acquired taste, and it, is always, and it has always been amusing to note the readiness with which persons who could not, who would not or could not read him, raised a cry of affectation against those who did. This phenomenon is too well known in other departments of taste to need further remark, but it may be added that Mr. Whitman has both gained by it and lost. He has gained a, vigorous, a vigorousness of support on the part of his admirers, that probably more than outbalances the accurate attacks of those who consider his work synonymous with all that is vicious in poetical technique and wicked from the point of morals. As to the latter, it must be confessed that, according to present standards of social relations, the doctrines taught by Whitman might readily be construed by the overhasty or unscrupulous into excuses for foul living, for such persons do not look below the surface, nor can they grasp the whole idea of Whitman's treatment of love. However fervid his expressions may be, and however scornful he is of the miserable hypocrisies that fetter but also protect the evilly disposed, it is plain that the idea he has at heart is that universal love, which leaves no room for wickedness, because it leaves no room 
for doing or saying unkind, uncharitable, unjust things to his fellow man. With an exuberance of thought that would supply the mental outfit of ten ordinary poets, and with a rush of words that is by no means reckless, but intensely and grandly labored, you see what's happened since 1855, Whitman is now uh, granted that uh, his poetry is not mean or is not reckless, but is intensely and grandly labored. Whitman hurls his view of the world at the heads of its readers with a vigor and a boldness that takes away one's breath. This century is getting noted among centuries for singular departures in art and literature. Among them all, there is none bolder or more original than that of Walt Whitman. And I think he does make a very good point, at least for Whitman's lifetime, that he wrote poetry supposedly for and about the common working man, and they were not among his readers, and they wouldn't be uh, for some time. Later on in this review, and this is the last part that I will read, um, it says, uh, Whitman's thought and his mode of expression is immense, often flat, very often monotonous, like our great sprawling cities with their endless scattering of suburbs. Yet, when one gets the, quote, hang of it, when one gets the hang of it, there is a colossal, a colossal grandeur in conception and execution that must finally convince whoever will be patient enough to look at it. His rhythm, so much burlesqued, is all of a part with the man and his ideas. It is apparently confused, really most carefully schemed, though. Certainly to a high degree it is original, it has what to the present writer is the finest thing in the music of Wagner. Imagine that, uh, comparing Whitman with Wagner. A great booming movement or undertone, like the noise of a heavy surf. His crowded adjectives are like the medieval writers of Irish, those extraordinary poets who sang the old Irish heroes and their own contemporaries, the chiefs of their clans. And I refer you to the current batch of great myths episodes for that. No Irishman of today has written a nobler lament for Ireland, or a more hopeful or a more truthful than has Walt Whitman. Yet it is not said that he has Irish blood, nor is there to be found in our literature another original piece of prose so valuable to future historians as his notes on the Civil War. Nor is there a poet of the wartime extant who has so struck the note of that day of conflict as Whitman in his drum taps. He makes the flesh creep. His verses are like the march of the long lines of volunteers, and then again, like the bugles of the distant cavalry. And this is about 15 years away from the end of the Civil War. So it's fresh in this author's mind. But these are parts of him. These are parts of Whitman. As he stands complete in leaves of grass, in spite of all the things that regard for the decencies of drawing rooms and families may wish away, he certainly represents, as no writer in the world, the struggling, blundering, sound-hearted, somewhat coarse, but still magnificent vanguard of Western civilization that is encamped in the United States of America. He avoids the cultured few. 
He wants to represent, and does in his own strange way represent, the lower middle stratum of humanity. But so far it is not evident that his chosen constituency cares for or has even recognized him. Wide readers are beginning to guess his proportions. And so there we have it. From 1881, someone can say that wide readers are beginning to guess his proportions. And I think of Whitman especially, I think it's sort of the cliche to imagine, for poets to imagine, that they have some sort of affinity or intimacy with Whitman because the personality that he presents is so attractive and inviting. But I just got done uh, publishing uh, two more pocket books through S4N books about uh, or of Whitman's poetry. One, the selected long poems of Whitman, and the other, the selected short poems of Whitman. And I was struck in designing the covers for those books that I wanted to use two pictures of Whitman looking straight at us. And I am struck by the look in his eyes. I'm struck by the fact that you imagine Whitman born around 1819, born in 1819. He doesn't publish Leaves of Grass until 1855. He's a journalist and sort of a a hack writer in the most polite sense in the late 1830s and through the 1840s. He makes a trip to New Orleans with his brother in 1848, and at some point, as Paul Zweig says in his book about Whitman, um, at some point between 1848 and you might say 1850, something happens to him the long foreground that Emerson writes about, wondering just where the hell Whitman came from, um, that long foreground suddenly bursts. And on the one hand, it's perhaps amusing to read these reviews of Whitman. Uh, it's anecdotal. It's Maybe it's something that you would laugh about uh, in an English class. Um, it is easy to judge these early reviewers, but when I think um, when I think of putting those book covers together and of choosing the photographs and of finding the ones where Whitman is looking straight at you, and one of them is that famous photo, uh, not not the woodcut, not not the it's not a woodcut, the the engraving, not the uh, waist up or thighs up engraving that is in the first edition of Leaves of Grass, but the photograph that comes from 1850 or so, or 1852 or three, that is just of Whitman's face. Um, I don't know, it's, you, you imagine, I guess the, the, the only other examples that I found uh, in, in writing or in biographies has been uh, the loneliness of Picasso for having done his uh, Demoiselle d'Avignon around 1907 or so, and how it wasn't, uh, and how it didn't 
become really well known at all until Andre Breton, the famous surrealist, bought it and I think uh, published uh, an image of it in the early 1920s. And how uh, Picasso tried to show it to his friends after he had published or after he had painted it, and none of them really cared for it. And there's another passage in a in a biography of uh, Isaac Newton where it talks about the loneliness of being so ahead of your time. And I wonder just what it was like for Walt Whitman to have discovered this persona, this personality that he was able to put down on paper, whether or not it matched his actual biography or not, whether it matched who he was uh, to the rest of the world or not. I guess it really doesn't matter. Um, this voice that was inside of him and possessed him and didn't let go until he died uh, almost 40 years later. Uh, you realize that these reviews aren't humorous or anecdotal at all. They are the map of someone's life. And if you read a full biography of Whitman and you see what he went through, um, this isn't really to pity him. I mean, there were worse lives to be leading in the 1850s in America, that's for sure. But for creative people out there who can imagine being so far ahead of your time as to be basically ignored or mocked or derided most of the time, almost all of the time, and only 10 years before your death for a reviewer to say something like, wide readers are beginning to guess his proportions. There's the story, I think, when uh, Whitman uh, traveled to Boston for uh, to help set up the 1860 edition of Leaves of Grass, and I believe Emerson came down to see him, and they walked the Boston Common, I think the story goes. And uh, even Emerson is trying to tell him to lighten up on all the sex stuff, just take those poems out or revise them, what it must have been like to hear that. And just these pictures of Whitman and his face and his eyes, um, and, and, the, and the, the strange realization that as powerful as those poems are, as groundbreaking as they are, as not groundbreaking as art, but as personal documents of, of a human being who lived and breathed and walked the streets of New York and Brooklyn and Long Island, um, writing these poems, um, just what that must have been like to basically have hardly anybody to talk to about this. Uh, it's very striking. And I realized as I was reading these reviews, and actually I've realized all along that uh, in my episodes here where I've talked about critics and uh, academia and the things that I apparently don't like about critics or academia. Um, all of that is, it, it may well have a kernel of truth to it, but in another sense, it is also just a pose. It is, um, I don't know what the literal definition of a straw man is, 
philosophically. But um, in a way, it is something that I set up in order to talk about things, to talk about my own preferences, my own biases. Um, and I realize that in, in all the... And, and that that is just what people have to do sometimes, to just get by talking or debating or giving a lecture or just talking with their friends. And it's been nice to have listeners write to me and say uh, that they somehow feel as if I am their friend, as if they have had some sort of a communication with a real person. And um, I'm amazed that that has been able to happen. Um, but I realize that my answer when I set up the straw man of academics or of critics or of what is wrong, quote unquote, what is wrong with poetry today, that my usual, um, my usual solution, as you've heard, is uh, get back to basics, get back to writing poetry that tells a story, get back to poetry that uses uh, plain language powerfully, that uh, is a narrative and all of this stuff. Um, as if that could magically solve everything, as if that would magically put poetry back on people's shelves and uh, poetry back into people's minds all over the world and all, all over the United States. Um, but the corrective to that, of course, is Whitman. And the corrective to that is uh, Emily Dickinson, uh, arguably the greatest poet that America has yet produced. And if you disagree with that, I think you would at least say that they were the best poets that the uh, 19th century America produced. But what do their lives tell us? Uh, their lives tell us that if you're Whitman, uh, even um, after you've died, the newspaper of record in your country can not call you a great poet unless they deny poetry to be an art. Um, and if you are Emily Dickinson, it is that uh, you will probably not be read at all in your lifetime. And even after that, it would take, was it the, the Thomas Johnson uh, Harvard edition that came out in the, in the 50s that, that resurrected her? I remember reading the letters of Ted Hughes, and that was around the time that he mentioned suddenly being floored by Dickinson with this new edition of her poetry. And that is more than a century, or, or just about a century, after she began to write poetry. Um, so it isn't a catch-all. Uh, th th there really is no answer, in a way, because there really is no malaise in poetry, you might say. I can say this or that about uh, critics or how poetry is taught. But the good poets, I think, will, the poets that will really come to matter, um, I can't even say they will one day be noticed, because that isn't necessarily true either. They will go up, they will go down, some will disappear, some will reappear. Um, it isn't even a matter, really, of, uh, one of these reviews mentioned the Irish bards, and on the one hand, uh, I could say something like, well, the Celtic myths that I've been reading, these are high literary and cultural uh, 
expressions, and they were also popular in their time and um, contributed to the uh, the popular or folk or oral versions of these stories as well, and that something happened to culture between then and now, and that was why the greatest poets in America in the 19th century, just as an example, were ones that people either didn't read or were ones that, that were largely ignored or hated. Um, but I just don't know that, there, that that is true anymore, or that it is really worth uh, focusing too much on. Um, it is the poetry, I suppose, that matters the most. And that is really the reason why I took the time to very carefully select my favorite long poems by Whitman and my favorite short poems by Whitman. About 200 pages of long poems and about 120 or so pages of short poems. And I think uh, now that I've read the early criticism, I will just get back to reading the poetry itself because that is what matters most, and perhaps reading more from Paul Zweig's biography of Whitman that mattered so much to me last year. Um, and I suppose that that is it for now. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.